Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Rob Mitchell. As a longtime resident of Nashville, Rob has built an impressive resume list of gigs throughout the decades. Currently, Rob continues to hold down the drummer's chair with the band Sixpence None the Richer. And due to their light touring schedule, Rob finds time to work with singers like James Otto, Chuck Wicks, Wes Cunningham, and Chris Carmack from the TV show Nashville. To find out more about this podcast and all the other episodes that we've done, including over 100 episodes, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and while you're there, you can leave a rating and review. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares, and well, do you believe it? Love at first sight? Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker, a 14 by 6 8-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings. I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum, and our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare available in 14 by 6 or 13 by 5.5, and the Equinox, a 14 by 5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the micro-lock, cylinder drive with the butt-end adjuster, and English mat. Okay, you know that little click-click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. In the very near future on this podcast, we are going to sit down and talk with Russ Miller and get the backstory on these snares, as well as some very interesting developments coming your way through the Black Panther Design Lab line of instruments. You're going to want to hear this. So here is Rob Mitchell. I think just for like anybody that just doesn't have like a steady road gig, you're constantly juggling five different things a month or whatever it is. Yeah. If you're staying busy, it's, 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 you know, uh, the songwriter here, or you have like, I have a couple friends of mine that have like a production company and they'll call me to do a, a session, you know, whether it's a, you know, song library thing they're doing or like a limited pressing record or whatever it is. And you just, you know, you're just always kind of, juggling that you know those different projects and trying to stay busy and um i am um, you know in the past couple of years like there was about uh i would say it was 2011 i started playing with sixpence none the richer again um i had been right. um with them in the early 2000s I did a record with them called divine discontent and then the band after about a, another couple of years ago, 2004, Matt and Lee, kind of the leaders of the band, decided to kind of call it quits. And so mm-hmm. everybody kind of went their separate ways. Lee did a solo record. Matt did his band thing. And, and um, you know, I, I went back to kind of being a hired gun again, even though I was still doing other stuff at the time while that band was going on. Was the band, during that time, how busy were you guys? We were pretty busy. I mean, I started playing with them. Um, well, I'll back up. I got in the band, uh, my buddy Sean Kelly, who was a guitar player that I was playing with in the uh, late 
90s. Um, we were doing, playing for a couple different Christian artists. Mm-hmm. And he got the gig with Sixpence <clears throat> right before kind of Kiss Me hit real big. Mm-hmm. And so they were touring and doing, you know, supporting that record and that single for a couple of years. And, and, um, and then they kind of had a hiatus uh, once the, you know, that whole cycle had died down. Dale Baker, their original drummer, who's a fantastic drummer, uh, ended up leaving. Um, and then I had, since Sean being in the band, I'd become friends with Lee and, and, and her husband, Mark, who they ended up being really good friends of mine and, and some other people in the band. I would hang out with them. We'd go to dinner or bowling or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when it came time to, to kind of get started again and, and they started talking about auditioning drummers, they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, yeah, you know, would love to, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And just got the got the gig. Ended up, they had already had a record in the can, and then uh, they had all this label turmoil. Uh, I won't get, get into that because it's <laughs> much of the history of that band has been kind of <clears throat> kind of uh, dotted with lots of uh, legal and, and label stuff. But we ended up having to go back in uh, and recut like another half of a record. I think we did, ended up doing like five new songs, yeah. And then we did a cover of uh, "Don't Dream It's Over" by Crowded House. Yeah, and is that that's is that you? That's on me. It? Yeah, yeah. So whenever you're in Home Depot or Gap buying khakis, that's generally one of the songs you'll hear. Yeah, I know that's when I hear it. Uh, you know, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that they had done that, and I I stumbled upon that, and I love Crowded House. Oh, I I'm do. Like, it's one of my. They're in my Mount Neil Finn is like on my Mount Rushmore of songwriters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love yeah. him. Great version of the song, yeah. and I was like. Is this the same? And sure enough, it was. That was great. Yeah, it was. A, that was a weird experience because it was. We did it. We, we recorded most of the record. They ended up using Paul Fox, who was the original producer uh, on the, the the first record that they did here in Nashville, to Ocean Way. And then when everything kind of got when the dust settled, we had to go back in and record. They flew him back out, and we did. We finished the rest of the record here, but then we went out. the The label head, and they ended up the, the label they were on ended up getting kind of absorbed. Word Lecker uh, by Warner Brothers. They ended up kind of getting absorbed in this whole deal, and so uh, we ended up going out to whoever their manager was, or some of their publishing company. I can't remember. Was big friends with Neil and was just dead set on this covering this song. Oh wow! And um, and so, uh, oh, I think it was the guy that was head of network. I think they were managing Sixpence at the time. So Rob Caballo produced it. We went out to L.A. And I was so stoked because, you know, I knew they weren't really thrilled about doing another cover tune and like kind of being pegged as this band that does cover songs because they yeah. had done There She Goes and that was a Laws tune and it was a big hit for them. So I think they were wary of it. But so we get out there and um, as much as I'd love that song, I don't think I'd ever played it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. so I'm I'm thinking like, oh, how am I going to do this different? You know, what am I? How am I going to approach? Because the drum track is, is 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 pretty simple, but he did, Paul Hester did some pretty cool mm-hmm. things in it that kind mm-hmm. of like, man, I kind of want to keep some of that spirit of that. Mm-hmm. And so I remember we got there the night before. We go in, in the morning and, and start setting up and getting sounds. And uh, Alan Sides was the engineer there who's worked on like Thriller and uh, just crap. we did it at a Cello One, which I don't know if it's around anymore. But it's just great old studio. There's yeah. so much, so, so much great history there. <clears throat> I was learning so much, and like we go in and finally we sit down and, and kind of do, kind of sketch out a quick arrangement of it. Go in and run it, and then um, is this and this is the first. It's not like you guys were in pre-production no. to try to come up with arrangements. We did pre-production for the other songs, but we did we literally just sat down uh-huh. in the in the you know which you do you know yeah, I've sure. been in sessions or demo sessions where you just go all right get around the coffee table and right, listen to the song right. or write a chart and that's kind of what we did. And so we went in, 
we ran it once and something wasn't working. I can't remember. There was a loop we were playing to. And I think, uh, I, I can't remember. We, we had a bit of a break and then we went back and cut it again. And, uh, it was getting to be about lunchtime. And, and, uh, I remember we'd gone back and listened to like one of the takes and I was like, man, I like some of the stuff I did on that. Um, the second half when we run it again, mm-hmm. you know, I want to try to change something up. And, and I just remember Rob Cavallo turned around and he goes, no, man, you're done. Track sounds great. We might Frankenstein it a little bit, but I think, and I was mm-hmm. just like, part of me was just like, I was heartbroken because it was like, I want to give this yeah. another go. Yeah. But the track that you hear is basically, uh, and I watched the Pro Tools guide. He took like the first half of the first kind of first run through that we did. Mm-hmm. And then took the second half of the kind of the second half of the second run through that we did. And he, mm-hmm. and he was like, no, man, that sounds great. Yeah. You did a good job. Take the rest of the day off. And I was just like, Isn't that crazy? I was so disappointed <laughs> it was like no i want to like i want to i want to nail this so at any time you know and i have that that cringe anytime i hear that song and regardless of what context or where it is it's just like oh man i really wanted to give that one another couple of goes you know and it's not a bad track at all no, i don't have no. any ill feelings toward it but but i just you know i have that contextual attachment to it about how we did it and yes. so nobody knows kind of that except for me and so it, it, it bothers me and I hear other songs like that too that I've played on and I'm just like oh man I wish I, wish I had done this or had not done that you know? and everyone does that everybody's second it, it is and it's been a topic of conversation many times when you go in and do your thing and then especially I mean in this case you were a part of the group but I mean if you're doing a session for someone mm-hmm. else and you've been hired to come in they're like this is good and you're like yeah but I can like dude it's ours now. Yeah. You know? And even, like, Eddie Bears talks about, like, you go in, you play the track, you get your check, and you go. It's their track now yeah. to do whatever they want. You're, you stayed with them uh, at that particular time. Yeah. And- was was with them. Uh, yeah, we did, uh, that record came out. Uh, we did TV, and mm-hmm. you know, we were on The Tonight Show, and, and did tours with, like, Counting Crows, and played a bunch of, <clears throat> played a bunch of big Christian festivals and stuff, too kind of uh stepping in and out of both of those worlds and then uh you know it just kind of dawned on me that you know matt and lee uh, lee nash the singer and matt slocum Mm -hmm. the guitar player who kind of founded the band they they had started this band like 10 years prior to that right and i didn't realize how much history that they had had you know with forming the band and the initial you know like kind of crap they went through with their first manager slash you know record label owner and just you know they had been doing it a while and they just you know lee and and her husband at the time mark were having a kid and you know people were going through you know personal stuff divorces you know whatever and uh, they just decided to you know kind of amicably shake hands and call it a day and i was bummed but at the same time i kind of got it you know it was like man i didn't i've only been on this ride for like three years and some change Mm -hmm. these dudes have been you know kind of duking it out in the van and trailer world long before they had a hit single so when that all came came to an end i was just like oh man what do i do you know so you you get busy you know i i made the mistake of thinking well i have this you know this this cachet of playing with this band and people are going to just start calling me and you know and that wasn't the case you know and I went through a couple of years of, you know, some self-searching and thought about quitting, you know, for a while. I mean, I was working regular day jobs and picking up gigs in here, but it kind of, I had a season of like, it got really slow. Yeah. And, um, but uh, I kept at it, you know, and then, uh, 
things started picking up. Some of the f- cool stuff I did, I pl- ended up playing with a guy named Emerson Hart, um, who was in the band Tonic. Played on um, a little bit of his record that came out. I don't know, it was like 2008 or so, mm-hmm. seven or eight. We ended up touring that. Did a kind of a co-bill or kind of a, a direct support for like Collective Soul and Live. Wow. Did some fun stuff with them wow. and um, and about that time, I think Matt and Lee decided they kind of missed each other and and um, you know they kind of got the band back together and um, I was busy doing other stuff and I was just like, man, I know these guys and 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 I love them to death, but you know they might not be working a whole lot right off the bat. So right. and there was other stuff kind of involved with it and so they they got the band back together. They got another drummer and. Um, and a couple of years later, they finally got a you know some more record label jive kind of happened and legal stuff. Uh, they they got another record out and um, and uh, it's like they liked the abuse. And they, yeah, they, they, they were just coming back for more. You know? <laughs> and uh, so the guy that had been playing with them, um, he was kind of in my situation. He you know they had had some time off and he was getting busy. I think he was playing in some kind of like uh, big praise and worship like corporate thing that they were going out doing these big shows and he was making great money and this stuff was starting to kind of conflict with what he was doing so mm-hmm. they asked me to sub a date uh, it was actually right around uh, the uh, Super Bowl in Indianapolis I think it was like 2011 I was like yeah I'd love to you know yeah. so I went up and played that and then there came another show I was like hey he can't he can't do the show. Can you do it? And then finally, I guess he just stopped returning phone calls. And then when the record it was time to like promote the record it was like hey do you want to do you want to do this and I was like yeah I'm I'm actually, I don't have a whole lot going on right now. So we did that for a couple of years and, and, uh, actually <laughs> it's been great. Uh, I've, I've, with that man, I've been able to, to travel and see the world. Uh, you know, like we went to Taiwan back in, oh, wow. uh, November of last year. Uh-huh. And then before that, you know, we hadn't, and actually before that we hadn't played a show in several years, uh, before that, we went, we'd been to Japan, we'd been to Jakarta, Buenos Aires, London, we went to Turkey, went to Istanbul and Ankara. So, like, are these single shows or did you, were they part of a tour? Or <laughs> some of them were actually the, the, the Taiwan show was actually we flew over there, played one 45 minute set, and came right back. We played this big rock festival called the Love Love uh-huh. Music or Love Love Music Rock Festival or something. And and it was amazing. I mean, it was... It, it, so how does a band that, that is kind of at this stage in their career that doesn't play regularly, doesn't tour regularly, but but goes overseas and does a 45-minute set, how does how do you prepare? Does everyone just say, here's the set list, Let's we'll see you there? Well, we hadn't played in a while, so we did rehearse. We got together uh, at SIR for a couple of, like, three-hour blocks and just kind of ran through. And luckily, you know, at this point we'd kind of streamed down to just, you know, Matt and Lee, um, and then Justin, the guitar I'm a bass player, and then me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just kind of a four piece. And we'd been kind of touring like that, doing shows like that for a couple of years. And it actually sounded really good. Matt had all this huge pedal board with all these freak boxes and okay. could really feel things out very well. So it's just, there's no tracks, no, nothing. No tracks. No, gotcha. No tracks. And just, does Lee play anything? Or she's, no, she plays a little guitar, but she doesn't play anything on gotcha. stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we just went and rehearsed it and kind of dusted the songs off mm-hmm. and kind of dotted a few I's and crossed some T's, changed a few things and then, and went and did it, you know? And, um, 
And it was fun. I mean, it's always fun to play. The, the music is so great. And just getting mm-hmm. to hear her sing, yeah. have her in my, you know, in my wedge or in my ears every night is, is, is such a joy because she has such a beautiful textured voice and um, the songs are great. But yeah, we had done one of the other shows or a couple of shows we had done. Um, their manager out of the blue just was like, hey, we've got this. Uh, it was another big, like a 90s revival rock festival in Jakarta. And they were like, would you want to go do this? And it had been some, we'd had some time off. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I've never been to Jakarta and I probably will never go again. And, right. and you're paying me. So of course I'll go. Yes. And, um, <laughs> but they had bookended it with another trip to Buenos Aires because Coca-Cola in South America had just started to promote Coke Life, which was uh, that new. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like a little green it's label. Green, yes, it's like all like yeah. It's a sugar. stevia. I think it is, is the it? is the sweetener in it. And so, okay. I guess they were Coca Cola was like launching it down there first, and they had used they had licensed Kiss Me to be in all their like TV ads. So we went down there to do these corporate shows. We didn't play any like big outdoor venues. These were like private, yeah, just for Coca Cola. So this is this was our travel route. We flew from here to Chicago, Chicago to Hong Kong, and we had gotten delayed in Chicago because there were some maintenance issues. Because it's Chicago. Yeah, because it's Chicago. But there were some maintenance issues with the plane. With the plane. So we had like a six-hour layover or something like that there. So we ended up missing our connecting flight. So we had to go to Hong Kong and then switch airlines and go to like Singapore or something like that and then to Jakarta. And so we were backed up, but it wasn't like, you know, we're going to show up five minutes before the show kind of thing. We, we got there the night before. So... The next day we play the show and then that night get back on a plane. Yeah. Fly to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Chicago, oh my Chicago God. to Houston. And I remember we got off the plane at Houston and and I just remembered like like, okay, we've got somewhere else to go. I mean, at this point I was just so I wasn't jet lagged, but I was just so exhausted. And I remember like looking at the flight itinerary and said, we still had another 10 and a half hours to fly. Oh my God. <laughs> you don't realize how big South America is, you know? And, uh, cause it's down there. It's almost, it was winter. We, we, this was in July. So it was winter down there. Not necessarily. Right, it wasn't right. super cold, but it was, it was their winter. So we flew there and then, um, spent a couple of days. So we had some time to kind of decompress. We had like uh, a day to decompress before we had to go do this. The timeline shows. isn't as bad when you're going North and South. It wasn't as bad. And they were only two hours ahead of us. So by the time we got home, nobody was, I, at least I can only speak for myself, but I don't think anybody else was like really jet lag because we weren't in Jakarta for that long. Uh-huh. You didn't really have a chance to kind of acclimate to the, get your clock set to there. Right, right. So right. we came right back to the Western side of the world and <laughs> played these shows and then flew back home. Now, after that, uh, we had flown, uh, a couple of years ago, we f- they flew us to Japan. We did like a week there, and we did uh, we played like the Blue Note and the Cotton Club there. This nice, kind of, yeah. And man, I, I, this could be a whole separate podcast, but like playing in Japan is amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, I, it is. It yeah. is. It is unbelievable. The backline situation. I mean, every drummer needs to go and play the Cotton Club because I walked in and there was like. Every symbol of man manageable. There was every snare drum. Wow! It was just I walked in and it was like, and they couldn't have been more professional, polite. Like, yep. you know, I, I remember I had busted the the, the snare wires on or, or the or the string on one of the, the snares, and uh, I was just using a superphonic, and uh, and I was like, ah, I'll just get another snare drum. And then man, they had fixed it and tuned to put a new head on it, and it just sounded great. It was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, we spent that week in Japan 
playing, we played two shows every night. We had like a day off, I think in between. There. We nice. played like four, uh, three or four different venues. But coming home was, I had been a little, <clears throat> I had had some little bit of jet lag in my life before, but I had never felt this exhausted. Really? Oh man. And I thought, and I didn't get it going there, but coming back, like I remember like the next day, cause I had like coming right back, I had just started playing with this artist. Uh, and we had already had rehearsals set up, you know, this yeah. was like a, uh, uh, I just taken this gig. It was a, a salary thing. My buddy Jackson Epley was the band leader mm-hmm. and they were making a push to get this record out. And so we were going to rehearse a couple times a week. And I woke, I remember waking up the next morning at like six in the morning. I was like, all right, here we go. I'm going to, work on some charts and get some stuff going, got rehearsal in the afternoon. I remember when it got to be about 11 o'clock, I was exhausted. Like I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I went back to bed, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like that for like a week. I wake up every morning, like at six or seven and by 10 o'clock I was destroyed. <laughs> I'd well, they never say felt that. so exhausted. And it took a while. It took a while to kind of mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. past that, get my clock kind of reset, but well worth it. Cause playing in Japan was amazing. My understanding is for every hour, time change is a day of recovery. Well, it was 13 hours okay. change. So, I mean, it didn't, it didn't quite take me two weeks, but it took me about a good, I would say six or seven days before I was like, okay, I, you know. And I think a lot of us are used to, when, we're, when you're touring, you're traveling, you're used to jumping time zones. I think last year I went from Alaska and within six days I was in Bermuda and, you know, six hour time change. The... Um, I also hear that when, when you go overseas, the jet lag isn't bad, but when you come back is when it hits you. And I, I think there's a variety of theories yeah. for that. I think you're so excited about a new place and yeah. things like that. It's, it's interesting. I had a chance to go to uh, Japan in 2002 uh, for their country... Oh, the big thing up on the mountain? Yes. I always wanted to do that. Was, I have so um, many friends of mine that have done it. I'm so jealous I've never gotten to go. It was, it was amazing. It was very <laughs> short. And there was, again, there was a, uh, I think it was out of Houston, but there was a, a, a delay. So, you know, we didn't have as much time there. So you have mm-hmm. Saturday all day to go up to the mountain and sound check and do the things. And then you do the show on Sunday. And then you leave like Monday morning or yeah. Sunday night or something like that. So it wasn't hardly enough time to to really get. And and I did a, a, a trip to Scotland where it was the same way. You drive up to the north coast and play two shows, and then that night you're back at three in the morning driving to the airport. Yeah. And it's like, what just happened? Yeah. You know. And it's 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 hard to enjoy those things, but you just you have to take as many pictures as possible so that when yeah. you wake up, <laughs> you're yeah. there. Yeah, when we were we were in Tokyo for uh, those it was like seven eight days, like that would be a blast. And, and it was so fun. And, and and I'm I'm kind of a culture junkie. I love learning about different places and like what's you know what's cool to do and not do. You know, like they're the the money thing there. It's like you never hand anyone money. You always put it in those really? little, they have these little, every time you go to a market or a restaurant or whatever, they have these little plastic trays and you put your money, you never hand anyone money. Oh. That's considered like bad juju or dishonorable okay. or something. Uh-huh. Um, but just how, uh, you know, just uh, like, uh, I, I remember when we were leaving, we were at Narita airport and I'd heard about, you know, like, you know, crime rate is so low there and like people are very honorable and there's everything, everything in the society is kind of based on honor, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I remember going to the, we got to the airport 
And I was hungry, so I went like the, the only place I could find that didn't have like a line was like McDonald's. So I went and got a burger or something. And it was really good. It was like the best McDonald's hamburger I'd, I'd ever had. I, I was like, it didn't have fish in it. It's the one thing that didn't. Yeah, have fish. but but it was like, but but I ate it. I was so hungry, and um, and I remember like going to the bathroom and like you know washing my hands. And I had a jacket on at the time that had this like inside pocket where I kept my passport and my mm-hmm. my. Uh, my plane ticket and um at some point i was like washing my hand my that all fell out of that jacket i didn't see it It fell right on the floor right under the the sink and so uh, i go back to the kind of departure lounge we're all hanging out everybody's got their earbuds in and you're reading books and stuff we still have like another hour or so before the flight leaves and i remember i'm one of these people that does the cross check like every 15 minutes yeah where's my wallet where's my phone where are my keys exactly yeah and I, i did the and i was like holy oh crap yeah and so I was like, all right, where was an hour ago? Okay, I went to McDonald's and then I went to the bathroom. So I went to McDonald's first, looked, looked just looking on the floor, looking on the ground. And then the men's room was not too much farther down on the left. And I remember walking in there and there it was sitting right on. And this is a, a good hour had transpired. And yeah. Nobody had touched my passport or my, um, or my plane tickets. And I was just like, man, that would have never. Yeah. Happened, and I remember hearing a story. A friend of mine told me prior to going there, and he goes, he, he and his girl, he was over there playing for like a month, and his girlfriend came over, and they had a couple of days off, and they were taking the train out to somewhere, and they got off, and she left a bag that had like an iPad and a laptop and all this stuff in it, and as soon as they got off the train, like thirty seconds later, it, the train was gone, and she realized what had happened. Oh, so no. they went to the station and talked to him and had somebody translate, and they said, oh, just come back and that that train will be back in like an hour and a half or two hours or whatever and sure enough they showed back up and it was sitting right there no one will touch you know yeah anything you know yeah they know it's someone has left it you know they know at some point you're going to come back to get it come looking for it you know with with sixpence they are kind of Doing, they're dividing their time between like a secular and and Christian music. How was that a difficult thing to manage? Um, because those sometimes can be completely two different worlds. And I wonder if business wise, if that applied the same. You know, um, I I can't really speak to a lot of that. I just know that what I knew about the band getting in, and I think a lot of people had a misconception that they started out as like a Christian band, and that's what they kind of pursued. My understanding of it was this: while they were all believers and grew up going to church, in some of the early records, obviously the songs are are overtly, uh, you know, faith based, faith based, or, or, or mm-hmm. had religious over and undertones. Uh, you know, when they first started out, they were planning church. They were kind of doing everything. And their their yeah. first producer, I mentioned that guy that they had had some issues with early on. Uh, he owned their label and publishing and everything. But he was he was out of Buffalo and was working with like the Goo Goo Dolls and Ten Thousand Maniacs. And so he, they were out on tour, playing rock clubs and theaters and stuff yeah. too. And then they kind of had their foot in the, they, you know, in the Christian world. They were kind of like this cult band. They weren't like a big. They would go to like Creation Fest or, you know, or or. A, what was the big one they used to Ichthus or whatever the one they used to have in Illinois. Um, and they would be playing like a small tent, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon, but it would be packed with people. And, and it wasn't something they were like pursuing as far as I could tell or kind of understand their history. It wasn't something that like, Oh, we're just going to do this. But they were like, no, we just enjoy playing to yeah. people and we have our music. Right. So when kiss me came along, 
that's when they just kind of decided, you know, we've done this. We're not leaving this world behind, but like we have this opportunity, we have these great songs and this record, and we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, the, the label decided to really kind of push them in a pop sense. Getting them on that soundtrack mm-hmm. for that movie um, kind of was like one of the big stepping stones to getting kind of well known in the pop world. And um, so I don't ever think it was, uh, I think once they became a hit, yeah, I think there was a. And again, not speaking for them, but just kind of from where I'm sitting, there was kind of like a uh, reading some of the magazines, like CCM magazine, some other publications. There was just like, oh, they're one of us. I was like, well, you never really embraced them fully, you Mm. know, from the beginning. So there, there was a there was a weird that I think kind of started a strange relationship with. with what they were doing and what kind of people perceived that what they were. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there was always, you know, we, we, we did festivals and stuff, but it was never, you know, it was never like the mission to kind of do that kind of music and have that kind of message. It was just like, Oh, they, they want us, you know, we have this, we have this arrow in our quiver. We believe these certain things. So we'll go play these festivals. But yeah, but then we were out on yeah. with counting crows for yeah. a couple months. And so it was, it was, it was always a, it's not a black and white thing. Yeah. It wasn't a black and white thing. Right. And there was, there's examples, I think with the band live, what were yeah. they kind of in that, in that camp in, well, in many I th- ways? I think, I think Ed, uh, I think at the, when they first kind of hit, I think Ed was like a Buddhist or something like that. But then I think he um, became a Christian like not too long ago. So, so currently, uh, before we move on, yeah. um, they're they're back to they got back together in 2011, or you started around then. Yeah, I started back with them, you know, and then and we there was a record that came out. We kind of we spent about a year touring that, and then uh, you know, since then it's just been kind of slow. It's been like I said, we played in in Taiwan and in Taipei at that festival back in November, and we hadn't played together since. Actually, we had gone to Japan like almost two, two and a half years. So, you know, in the meantime, you know, Lee had recorded, she did a kind of a country record or something she's always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody kind of went off and and I was doing, playing for a bunch of different people. Justin, the bass player, was Mm -hmm. a side guy too. So he was, you know, playing with a bunch of different people. So we just kind of like, you know, I I wasn't really, I've never been really a member like a, a member of the band per sure, se. Sure. I've but if they been, have something on the books, they'll call me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's great. And I always look forward to doing it. I wish, you know, I wish there were more shows. The music is fun. I've always, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of different kind of music, but I've always been, my heart is like in pop mm-hmm. rock kind of music. Even yeah. though I love, I grew up listening to a ton of R and B and soul and, um, it's just kind of always where my heart's been. So this kind of music was like right in my wheelhouse. It's yeah. fun to play and they're great people. Yeah. And, uh, it's a good recipe. So in, yeah. And so anytime they call me, it's like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm down. I'll drop well, I think that, that listeners need to know that there's, when you're, when you, when you're credited with being a part of a group or a drummer for a group or mm-hmm. whatever it is, um, it's not that that's your full-time job. It's yeah. like you are credited for, I'm the drummer for Sixpence on the Richer. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, when are you playing next? I, I don't know. Yeah. But sometimes that's just the way it is. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. 
The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So Baton Rouge. Yeah. Born and raised there. Uh, I moved here in 84. My brother had moved. My brother was a guitar player. Okay. And he'd moved up here because a friend of our family, they went, he'd gone to high school with and become real good friends with, this guy Wayne Kirkpatrick. He's hmm. a songwriter here in town. Wayne... Wayne's dad was a pastor, and we so, went to their church. Yes. His name sounds familiar. Wayne's uh, had a lot of success. He he wrote a lot of early, a lot of Amy Grant singles in the uh, mid to late eighties, early nineties, and then he's he won a Grammy for he wrote he co wrote that uh, "Change the World" that uh, uh, Eric Clapton song. Yo, wow, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and and just recently, he and his brother wrote a Broadway uh, musical. You know, just crazy talented guy. Wow, incredibly talented and 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 good guy. Um, but he had moved here. My brother was like, I want to, you know, he had been going to some guitar school or something in San Antonio. So he moved up here. And when I graduated, it was like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I hated high school so much and didn't even want to go to LSU, which was in my hometown, you know, it was mm-hmm. 35,000 students. But just the idea of running into any of these people that I had to deal with for four years was just, I just, I didn't hate my hometown, but I was just ready to go. I was ready to kind of mm-hmm. spread my wings. And I had been playing drums you know, all throughout high school. And, and, uh, I was like, man, I want to go do this. I want to go play music. I've got the bug. You Were know? you playing drum set? Were you playing a band? Were you doing I marching just, stuff? No, I didn't. I never did the marching. The, my high school was awful. And the, and the music department was, was terrible. And the marching band, I just never really had an, uh, any kind of affinity for that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I really just wanted to play in a band. I wanted to play, yeah. you know, rock music, mm-hmm. pop music. And that was my thing. And so even though I was moving to Nashville, I thought, well, this might get me, you know, some experience. And so I went to Belmont, studied music business there. And one of the first things that happened after the first year I got in this band called the Belmont Reasons, which was a, which was a scholarship. And it was kind of like a big deal at the time. Cause like Dan Huff had been a Belmont Reason. I think Stephen Curtis Chapman was a okay. Belmont Reason. A bunch of other people had gone on to be like producers and engineers. Uh, I can't even remember all the names, but I remember you see pictures of them in our rehearsal room. And, uh, and so, uh, it was a great experience because not only did it pay for my school, most of it, uh, we were playing a wide swath of styles. Like we did a, we did a full pop show that was country pop, you know, kind of hits of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was kind of like, a. Uh, <laughs> looking back on it now, it, it looks a little cheesy, but, but I mean, in a formative sense, I learned a lot. I learned how to read charts, learn how to write charts. That's very progressive. Uh, I mean, for that time. Yeah. Too. And we were, and we were, and we were making, you know, we were, uh, we worked for the school. We worked for the admissions department. So we would go and play like for like civic meetings, like for the Lions club in Greenbrier, Tennessee, or, uh-huh. you know, or we'd go play high schools and try to recruit students to come to Belmont. And then we'd go play churches. Cause at the time Belmont was part of the Tennessee Baptist convention. So we would go, and play these churches all over the state and mm-hmm. some in the Southeast, but mostly in the state. 
so we had a full like gospel show that went from like Amy Grant, CCM pop stuff to like huge inspo, like Sandy Patty, Larnell Harris kind of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was a wide range of music and I learned so much. I learned, you know, I learned how to play the, the brush, you know, the, 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 the train beat shuffle, you know, and, and I had to work on that because like Bob Malloy, who was the director at the time, like when I, you know, when I first started playing with him, he was like, you need to work on that. It doesn't feel right. Here's, here's yeah. the, like the five records or five songs you needed to like reference here. These, you know, go listen to Buddy Harmon and go listen to yeah. Jerry Croon or whatever. And I was like, uh, okay. And so I did. And I just kind of immersed myself. So I had to learn, great. even though I think I was a pretty, uh, I had a good foundation of, of playing. And I mean, I, I think I don't think I would have gotten the gig if I wasn't, but like I had stylistically, I was kind of stuck yep. in certain kind of things that I was good at. So I had to really learn. Well, wait, how old were you though at the time? I was like 19, I think. Right. right. I mean, how much experience with few exceptions, we have a limited, you know, toolbox to pull from. Yeah. And, and, but what's amazing to me is that they had the foresight to say, Here's some things that we're going to work on. Here's some music we're going to do with this group at a higher education level. That's just so unusual because there's so many bands or there's so many schools where it's like there's the jazz program or there's yeah. a very intensive. Like North Texas or something like that. Yeah. Right. Maybe some fusion. But like when I was, we're close in age and it's like when I was in college, I mean, the idea of putting together some sort of a pop band that would explore some of these things was new. It was on the table. Yeah. But we're like, yeah, like this is the stuff that a lot of us are going to be doing. Yeah. You know, um, in the real world. Yeah. Um, that's great, man. Yeah. And it was, I mean, we would, you know, I got in the, I got accepted into the band and then like before school, I remember in the summer before, like he sent out the book to everyone, like, here's the, mm-hmm. the, the songs we're going to do. And of course those changed a little bit, but like he had these, you know, and this, this band had been going on for a long time. Bob, Bob was one of the first, I think he was the first guy to start a music business program in the country. I mm-hmm. think they may have had one at Berkeley, I think, or maybe had some kind of like minor or whatever, but like mm-hmm. Belmont was one of the first. And so he, t- and, you know, he grew up being a musician as well too. And he wanted to have this outlet outside of just the business. He wanted to have this band. So it started like in the early seventies, you know, and they would do a, We would do a record he would do a record every year. So we got mm-hmm. to record an album every year. That's amazing. And, um, and it was, uh, but we would do these medleys, like, especially on the, on the inspirational gospel side of the set that we do, these things would be like pages long with all these different tempo changes. And mm. I had to learn, <laughs> I didn't know what a coda or a DSL coda was mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. tempo. Like I was just like, Dwayne, it was our bass player. I was like, what does DSL coda mean? What am I supposed to do? What's that <laughs> weird? You know, like I felt so embarrassed, you know, but like, but it was a learning curve and everybody has to do it. Like, like remember the first time I did a session at Belmont, you know, I had recorded a little bit actually before I'd moved here, Wayne Kirkpatrick had done a, a little bit of recording. We did some songwriter demos for him and we were just in a room, just me and him. And, and they ended up putting guitar and stuff on, on later. But, the first time I actually like used a click, mm-hmm. I was like, I was so jazzed for my first session and it was a country song. It was for a recording project for a buddy of mine at Belmont. And I just didn't know that like, well, you really need to be able to hear the click, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. So when we were getting sound and, and, and so I kind of knew what to expect as far as like getting sounds and having my drums ready and just kind of being mentally prepared. But yeah. like, but like, Every time we'd start the song off, it'd be like one, two, three, four. We start playing, and then I'd get off, start getting off a click because I couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out. And I hear like the the pedal steel player is this old dude, and he's out there, and the guitar player, they're like, just 
I can hear them making fun of me and making jokes. And I'm just like, I can just feel my confidence and my, I'm already a pretty shy person anyway at this time. And I'm just feel my, my just insides just coming apart. Like I'm Mm -hmm. like somebody breaking a puzzle, you know, it was just like, oh, so I finally got through the session and, and I remember the Doug, the guy that I was working for was like, well, man, what was what was up with you, man? I've seen you play before. Like, what happened? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just like, he's like, could you hear the click? And I was like, no, I couldn't. And he's like, you idiot. Why didn't you tell me you needed more <laughs> click? It's like, you were all over the road and I've seen you play before and you like, you were fine. Like, it's like, I just, so he's like, man, from now on, when you go and do sessions, you need, that's the, one of the loudest things you need to hear if you're going to mm-hmm. be. So it was like those little things, you know, finally learning what a, what a, a repeat bar or mm-hmm. learning what a, DSL Coda is learning how to get a click up in your ears so you can actually yeah. play to it. Those were like, they seem small and inconsequential now, but at the time they were huge revelations and just like, oh, wow, okay. All right, note to self, you know. But even in my school, man, conservatory of music, there was no like learning to play to a click, learning to prepare for a session uh, in that detail. Yeah. Um, and I think that now young players grow up, they've got access to technologies is... is and the and people knowing how music is produced is more prevalent than it was. Yeah. So maybe it's not so much of an issue anymore, but the root of how you create music and how you express yourself has never changed. I mean, it's almost getting we're almost getting full circle now where there's a lot of people that are doing sessions without clicks. You know, you hear yeah. that all the time. I'm talking to Chad Cromwell and he's like I don't think we used to click on any of that stuff, man. You know, it's something that he recorded like six months ago. That's so nice. There's so much relying on just people creating and performing music. Yeah. You know, and so there are times, my point is, there are times that I think, man, I wish I had access to this. I wish I had the internet. I wish I, when I was growing up, I wish I had practiced more knowing what I was going, you just can't anticipate what yeah. things are going to have, where they're going to go. And now we have a, this, this generation of young players that are coming in playing this amazing stuff on the drums, but it still comes down to creating music and playing a supportive role, uh, in the studio or live. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's just that's something that it's hard to say it's can you practice that can you and, and maybe it just comes down to spending more time listening and less time in the practice room i think i think you nailed it listening is that, that and that's one of the things that early on in that in those early years at belmont it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to podcasts but it no. does mean <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not no but i mean just really like you know opening up your ears and listening to how someone might be pushing and pulling like, like uh, even now, like uh, I'm like this weekend I'm going out. One of the guys I played with is James Otto and oh, cool. I, I love playing with him because mm-hmm. first of all, he's a great guy and he's, he's a fantastic singer and just an all around great dude. Yeah. But like musically, he's one of those guys that really knows like what his music should sound like, how it should feel. Okay. And it's easy and difficult in the sense because like, there's some things that I'll have a click in my ear and I'll count off with a lot of tunes. He'll, he'll start playing, you know, and he, James is such a big dude. And I sit, I sit right behind him. I can watch his forearm. Mm-hmm. That's what I watch. Mm-hmm. Like if that's where it needs to be, that's where he's feeling it, you mm-hmm. know, or listening. That's where it needs to be. And there's been times like where I think I'm just absolutely killing it. Like he does a, a version of night moves by Bob Seger. I mean, there's been countless times where he's turned, not countless, but several times where he's turned around and like, 
like right here, buddy. Mm-hmm. Right here. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the song and not really, I'm, I'm getting off the track of really listening. And, and, and there's, mm-hmm. that's a fine line that we walk, you know, as yeah. any kind of player. I mean, you really have to, my job is to, to, to support his song and his efforts and what he's doing, you know, and uh, having fun and enjoying the moment are kind of, they're great and everything, but they're kind of secondary. It's like, I need to tune in to what he's feeling and thinking and singing and playing. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's what's important. And, um, and so with yeah. his gig, are you running a click? Are you using it as a start point? Uh, uh, are you relying? What or what are the, what did they request from you? Or they just said, uh, we want Rob. He's going to play drums, and well, then you just assume certain things. Or I, I kind of had an idea going in, and, and I'm not the only one that, that plays with him. Like Joey Sanchez has played, and Matt Billingsley, and um, mm-hmm. uh, Miles McPherson. We've all worked with him. Um, James is super easy. Uh, my friend Jackson Epley's been kind of his band leader for a while. There's a couple songs that are on tracks. Okay, so he'll have a laptop and kind of fire everything. There's just maybe like three songs that we do maybe four that have tracks but they're super easy kind of straight ahead country pop stuff there's several of it he'll several of the songs he'll start himself and there's there's ones you know like the, the first couple of two songs three songs of the set i just you know i bring my little rhythm watch you know and, and mm-hmm. run it through a little mixer and like that like a little behringer and 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 you know just keep one ear in and count it and uh, I love the new the rhythm watch has that new function now the, the live version where it'll just play like four or eight bars of the tempo oh and then it stops oh which is kind of cool because you can kind of get you know it kind of freaked me out at first because I didn't realize that was a function like I kept thinking my, my battery was dying or something <laughs> was going wrong but but there's the practice one mode where you can just kind of play and play and play and the click will just keep going yeah but the 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 stage set or whatever they call it the gig set or whatever it'll just play like if it's at 120 it'll play that for four or eight measures and then it stops and but it advances one thing i found out <laughs> it'll immediately advance to the next tempo so if you want to check yourself you have to reach over and kind of okay. hit the back button um which they have that on there now but but yeah there's 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 some songs where i will there's just some songs where i'll just listen to the click mm-hmm. for you know for counting and go yeah and there's some songs if i know if there's starts and stops or some weird sections i'll listen to it the whole way just to kind of keep i know that you know the guitar player might be doing this the bass player might be feeling this so just to kind of keep it mm-hmm. you know kind of reined in and doesn't go off the rails too much i'll listen to the click all the way through yeah it just kind of depends on the song but sure the reason i bring it up is there's so many different ways of doing things like we've discussed there's old school going in playing good time feeling good yeah. time and there's the kind of the assumed current way of executing your job where you've got in-ears and you have a click and you have you play to the click everyone has the click sometimes you're the only one there's so many different scenarios and there's everything in between yeah there's maybe they're just assuming you're going to start there's uh i use a uh a bpm counter on my phone i used to have a trigger on my snare and it showed how fast i was playing oh wow um now there's the there's the apps i mean your my phone has everything you know it's got them i used to run it as the, the metronome sound um for different different things so for different artists there's i've got a rehearsal uh wednesday for somebody i've never worked with before so i'm going to kind of go in prepared maybe bring in a set of headphones it's going to be pretty Mm low-key it's at somebody's house it's not even at a rehearsal studio so i'm not prepared to like get a mix if i even get a wedge i'm be surprised i'm going to go in we're just going to meet we're going to have fun hang but i know the tempos 
of the songs. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have my metronome ready. I'm going to have my BPM counter so that I know where the band or this... And this is a young singer, so maybe he's not going to have a, an idea. Mm-hmm. But maybe he's going to be like Taylor Swift. He's going to be... He's going to know exactly what he wants from me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But and, being prepared for that. So you've already... And that's experience. I mean, that... You know, you you you're you have kind of all those colors on your palette. You're ready to like, okay, we're we just gonna play these and kind of see how they feel. Are we gonna have mm-hmm. everybody gonna listen to click, or is he gonna, you know? And we've all been in situations where you show up and and the person that's the singing or leading, you know, uh, is the last person that should be singing or leading anything. I mean, they have their songs, but they they may be green or just haven't really done it very much. And so it's you kind of have to subtly take that control about where things you sit or you walk a, you walk in a situation with like James Otto where he like he knows where things should feel and you like probably and, and you probably figured that out within minutes of yeah. meeting him and working with him yeah you, and, and if you like you and me have obviously been doing this a long time you 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 know you're prepared for this rehearsal so you kind of you have you have all those arrows mm-hmm. in your quiver you're ready to like mm-hmm. mentally like I can handle all of these these variable right. situations right. that might handle right. and that's you know that's our job you know yeah. I mean, that's, that's as important as knowing how to play, you know, just a, you know, like one of the rich five money beats or just showing up and just having, <laughs> just having that, that shit ready to go physically mm-hmm. from a playing standpoint mm-hmm. and mental. I mean, and, and even now, like I'm finding as I've gotten older, uh, the, the mental emotional, uh, part of what we do, uh, especially the, the mental part of it is, um, you know, there's all, there's all being prepared physically, you know, to play, you know, if it's a louder, harder rock gig, but then, but also just having like, you know, I, I think I'd mentioned this in the, in the, when we did the Coxmas podcast, like last summer, I did a couple shows that I was so busy and so spread out between all the different gigs and stuff that I was doing. And I did, the, I did a couple shows with this band and like, I had been waiting, couldn't wait to play these shows. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I kind of, I, I, I didn't do great and I was kind of disappointed in myself and um, just because I didn't I don't think mentally I had you know I had been playing tons so physically I was like I'm ready to go I'm ready to hit Mm -hmm. some drums hard and hit some cymbals and lay into this stuff Mm -hmm. but like I was I had been so busy and so frazzled just like mentally I was like I wasn't ready you know and that and that was a good lesson to learn especially as far as long as I am in 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 a career in playing music it was like it that never that training that that honing of that skill that's uh that aspect of your playing it it's just like anything else mm. you have to massage so what, that muscle you have to be you have to be ready for these different situations so what ha- what, what do you think happened i think i was just so uh spread out i remember like the night before i had played with chuck wicks one of the guys i played for Mm -hmm. and slept in an airport and then flew to florida and Mm -hmm. did this show and it was like a change in temperature it went from like being 30 degrees to 80 Mm -hmm. uh i was just tired but i was excited you know Mm -hmm. i was playing songs that i've always wanted to play and i just like the first show actually didn't go too bad i had a a one kind of major oopsie just because didn't have very good uh monitors but like the second one i did like a week or two later i mean i just tanked Hmm. but i let everything like it was really bad monitors like my back line was falling apart Mm. yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah you know it was just it was just a lot of things i just could not hear 
well enough to really get, and I let that kind of defeat me. I let that kind of like wear me down and, and, and start in the course of the show, in the course of playing, just like I yeah. felt myself yeah. being uh, kind of deluged by all this stuff that at any other time, I think I would have been fine. Like just like, all right, just screw it. Just play, just, just hit hard and just give it. These people want to show, just give it to them, you know, but instead I started like thinking like, oh man, the pedal, like mm-hmm. the, the situation where the, you ever get where you put a pedal on, you maybe you don't screw it down tight enough or the, or the threading's coming bad mm-hmm. and it'll start to scoot out or yeah. twist on you. Yeah. That was happening. Oh, you know, oh, yeah. the monitor, you know, I had a huge, uh, 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 sub next to me and a wedge on top of it and the wedge wasn't. Uh, taped or, 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 or strapped down and so it's like turning sideways and all I'm getting is just like this rumbling low end I can't hear any of the guitars or yeah, the vocals yeah, very yeah. well so all, and I'm all this stuff's like coming apart around me and I'm just like I'm letting it affect me it's just like man this is what you do for a living just right. have fun like so what I know just yeah. easier launch s- into some it. days easier said than done exactly but and when you're with maybe Maybe you're with a group for a long time or whatever. You're with your your brothers. You're just like, guys, sorry. Man, did you see that wedge? I mean, you're not making up excuses, but you're like, I was up against the wall. And people, they give you some room. But if if you're with a new group and you're like, I've got to play well. I've got to make a good impression. I've got to knock this out of the park so that I can earn some trust. I had a, an experience playing on Broadway, and I felt like I played like shit all night long. We come off the stage, new band's coming on, super young drummer is coming. He's like, yeah, man, that sounded great. I said, I did this, you know, can't take a compliment. I'm like, I don't feel like I, I played like shit. I just had a rough night. And he looked at me, and he goes, you know, when I have those nights, I hit the reset button. Like, say I'm into, like, three songs and it's just not feeling well. I'm like, okay, the gig starts yeah. now. And I'm like... That's great advice. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you little shit. Yeah. That is great. <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah. You're going to make mistakes regardless of what age you are doing this. Mm-hmm. And you can't let it... Uh, you can't let it haunt you or kind of, mm-hmm. like, build that, uh, the, you know... Uh, a barrier up over you know what you want to do and can do you just have to let it it's like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna 50 years old i'm gonna still make mistakes i'm human you yeah, know yeah yeah and it's just gonna happen and you just have to like push the reset and just get the well, hell over it you know you have to learn to adapt to all kinds of yeah. scenarios and what the demands are of that particular gig we mentioned i don't even know if we were recording yet um your online presence isn't really great. You're yeah. not pushing this. Do you feel like you need to? I've always felt like that I needed to, but I, I, um, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll post stuff occasionally, but I've, I always feel like th- th- this is kind of my, my feeling about self-promotion, especially on social media and the kind of the, the way things are now. I have absolutely nothing against it. I think it's a invaluable tool to let people know that, you know, because everyone, you know, just about everyone I know is on Facebook or has Twitter or mm-hmm. Instagram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to do it a lot more, but I feel like um, at some point it becomes, there's so many people doing it and there's so many guys that are loading up their posts with hashtags. I feel like at a certain point, and this doesn't keep me from doing it, but, but it definitely tempers how I approach promoting myself. Um, 
I feel like some, I feel like I was explaining this to someone the other day. Like you walk into a party, and everyone is talking, and there's that you know you've you've walked into rooms, and there's that din of conversation, and it's mm-hmm. like rumble, 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 rumble. Everybody sounds like they're saying the word rumble, watermelon, watermelon yeah. And <laughs> I feel like when I walk in and I start having a conversation or just start speaking, I feel like I'm kind of speaking into this this void that's filled with, with something, but mm-hmm. it's kind of a, it's, it's created its own void. And, uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm really kind of crystallizing what I'm trying to say, but like, no, like I, I feel like there's and, yeah. a lot of the same things being shown, said, hashtag. It's like, I, I want to be a part of that conversation, but I want to be different at the same time. I want to be able to like, again, not that there's anything wrong with, with at all with promoting yourself. I know, I know people that do it very well and tastefully, um, well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the key right there. It's tasteful. It's yeah. this is oversaturation of things that if you see if somebody posts something every day and it's and it's they're using, sorry if I offend anybody, but if they use my office of the day yeah. or things like that, you're like I'm exhausted. And then the next time, the next day, I see that person's post, I this is me personally. I go right past it. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I, and that's what I kind of feel like, you know, if you play that game, you're obviously, uh, you, you suffer that consequence from anyone saying it's like, oh man. And I, I, you know, and I've posted stuff before, you know, you know, songs I've played on or like, you know, snippets Mm -hmm. of like when I was with Sixpence and we played in, in, in Jakarta or whatever, you know, I would put something up, you know, Hey, I'm proud of this. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with being, you know, proud and, and kind of promoting the stuff that you've done or you're going to do, um, but uh, I don't know. I just feel um, maybe I'm a little old school. You know, I, I rely on kind of knowing people and kind of doing mm-hmm. subtle networking and just kind of, uh, um, you know, kind of keeping that route. But I keep my toe in it. You know, I do some promotion. Like, you know, there's this band that we play. I play with some of the guys in Hauser's band. We do this thing called MIPS on Tuesday nights. And it's just a fun outlet. We do different theme every month. It's it's not like a residency where we play every Tuesday night, but it's like every other Tuesday. So we take a month and we do a theme, mm-hmm. you know? So like this month we're doing one hit wonders from like the sixties up until now. Yeah. Hey, I saw that. Yeah. And, uh, so I'll promote that just because like you want to come see me play, come see this. Cause it's, it might not be like, well, last month in January we did a, a tribute to queen and that was a dream and a nightmare come true. <laughs> is, is, is the Queen is like one of my favorite bands. Roger Taylor is an, an amazing drummer. Mm-hmm. Great style, feel. His choices are impeccable. But trying to play 22 Queen songs. Oh, right. As much as I would want to do it again, I'm not doing that again unless we have a week of rehearsal. Because yeah. we would literally like run these songs maybe once, maybe twice, and then move on. Because we don't have a lot of time. Everybody has everything, stuff going on. So we don't have time to sit down for yeah. for two nights and rehearse this stuff mm-hmm. and, and suss mm-hmm. it out. So so when we go to play, I have extra like concert toms. I've got cowbell. I've got, I'm triggering stuff on my SPDX, you know, wow. hand claps and finger snaps and mm-hmm. bicycle bell sounds and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> it was an absolute meat grinder. As fun as it was, but it was just like, you know, that might not be the best representation of my playing, you know, those two nights, but it's like, if you want to come see me, come, come see me, play, yeah. come out, yeah. you know, like yeah. I want to go see my friends play music, you know, mm-hmm. like I want to be involved with them. Like the NDJ thing is, is a great time to see guys that you don't get to play with mm-hmm. or see very much and actually get to see them play. Uh, I might've wandered off my point a little bit, but I, I just like, 
I, I, I'm promoting yourself. Promoting and, yourself. And, and, I think and, I would but, like, like, come see me play, or I'll come see you play. Like, uh-huh. you know, I don't care about the hashtags. I don't care about all this other stuff. I want to mm-hmm. see what's your voice. Like, what's your, what are you mm-hmm. doing? Like, well, how are you actually contributing? One thing that uh, people need to know is what's it like to be Kevin Murphy's roommate? It is a daily nightmare of just uh, abuse. And no, <laughs> Kevin's awesome. He's Kevin and I have lived Are together. Are you abusing him? Or? Uh, yeah, maybe both ways, subtly, you know, at times. Uh, no, Kevin's great. He's, he's a dear friend. And he, he and... Uh, he and Tripper, uh, Ryder, who they both played for Hauser, Randy Hauser. Um, I was in a situation where I had to, I had like 30 days. I was like, the place I was living in was getting ready to get sold and bulldozed over in West Nashville. And it was like, I got to find a place to live, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, said, hey, we got a room out here in Donaldson. I was like, great, I'll, I'll move out there. And thinking it was going to be a temporary until I found some other place. And I ended up just staying out there. We live in Donaldson, which is a, a nice little quiet part of town and uh uh there's drums everywhere and i know does somebody does, does anybody <laughs> spend, I mean, he, he likes to say that he doesn't practice but i mean he doesn't practice very much i mean you know i i you know he has a gig so he doesn't really have to like learn new music all the time i'm probably practicing and working on stuff i, I know that i am because you know between like doing mips which is like 20 plus songs every time we play mm-hmm. uh and then you know uh or just the other day like i haven't played with james in I think it was no beginning of November, maybe or end of mm-hmm. October. So I had to sit down for like an hour and just like, like I have a board tape of his set never changes. So I like just okay. ran through that right, sure. once, you know, or if mm-hmm. I've got, you know, a, a Chuck Wicks gig coming up and I need to refresh myself. So like I'm always constantly uh, having to learn tunes, and you know I've got some other stuff I've got to learn coming up. And so I'm I'm usually the one that's like, hey guys, I got to play drums for like two hours. Sorry, and they'll mm-hmm. they'll they'll scoot out of the house or they'll just sit there and deal with it. But yeah, it's, it's not all the time. I try to pick my, you know, uh, practice times and like working on stuff. Yeah. You know. I wonder how people do it, you know, especially when you're living in a house with other musicians yeah. and, and like where I, you know, everybody has different drums are just, they're just loud. They're just loud. There's no getting around it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I'd had the four, thought to like maybe years ago, like buy like a, uh, one of those like lower line, like rolling, you know, electronic drum kits, just, mm, to, but it's no, just like, I've done do it. And I'm just like, eh, it's just, you know, even the pad, like I do like those, uh, Remo makes those, uh, silencer heads. I can't remember what they're yeah, called. Yeah. Those things are great. And the, and the yeah. cymbals that aren't really loud, uh, those are kind of bad. If I had like a, a little, actually I do have a kid. I might be able to like throw some of those on just to have to just not to spare make noise, kid. but, um, mm-hmm. spare some of the noise. But yeah, it's, you know, Kevin's great. I mean, we both, we're both adults and we kind of know, what mm-hmm. our schedules are, you know, they're, they're getting ready to get in their busy season here in the spring and summer. So he'll be gone on the weekends and I'll be in and out of town and probably yeah. various different times playing with different people, not kind of on a set schedule. So it, it all works out. It's all, you know, so nothing stay, that you can dish out. Nothing. No, it's, um, really? Oh, yeah. Man, I was hoping. All right. Yeah. He's, he's pretty much an open book. What you, what you, I know. Is. <laughs> We live in, the, in a digital era, a digital age where so much is what people do is online. You know, we've talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and it is a valuable uh, 
way to promote yourself, your band, or whatever you're doing, if you're a songwriter. Um, but I think you still have to you still have to get out there and meet people. Yeah. You still have to be good at what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, flexible, good ears. I mean, all those things that we've talked about, things that you need to to be proficient or, or at least trying to be proficient at or, you know, it's, you're still dealing with human beings. Yes. Yes. You know, um, so you have to learn, not only do you have to like learn to read, you know, like a way a, a singer or a songwriter that you're working for plays a, a certain way. Like I was talking about watching James's arm. Uh, you have to learn how to read the room when you walk into an audition or you walk into a, a rehearsal situation where you've never met any of these people before, mm-hmm. like what you've got coming it up. It happens. You have to kind of learn to read the room. Like, you know, you make your initial introductions, you start talking, you know, um, you start playing, but you have to kind of learn to kind of balance your personality, you know, what you can say or can't say or how you can act or how can't you act, you know, that's all part of the dance, you know, mm. and I don't think that's ever changed because yeah. you're dealing with people, you're dealing with egos and ids and, and, and expectations and emotions. And especially when you're walking in situations where you either don't know people well, or you don't know them at all, you know, this is your chance to, to you know, they what is it, what's the old saying? You only get one for one chance to make a first impression. I mean, yeah. it's true, and, and it's cliche, and it's kind of a shop worn saying. But it's like, you know, what you do in those first five minutes to an hour or whatever might be the only thing these people have to gauge what you're like, what you're about. And so you, you know, um, you have to be very professional, and you have to understand that, you know, this guy's songs. You may not like them. But like mm-hmm. these are his babies. These are his yeah. kind of outpouring. And even if they're shop worn and, and 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 the sentiments are, are something that you've heard a million times or whatever, it's the matter. You know, right, right, you're right. being hired to show up and, and contri- contribute to this some, somehow. So right. I don't think that's ever changed. You know, right. And and there's a certain language. Like when I was first getting out of college. I was the young guy, and I was—I remember—I was like, would go in those situations where you get thrown. You don't audition; you just get thrown out on the road. Mm-hmm. You go sub for a weekend. Like I yeah. did a sub weekend with this this band that's not around anymore, but they were called the Forrester Sisters, and they had a couple hits in the late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, I just got thrown in. Mm-hmm. I got like a, a crappy board tape, <laughs> and then like a copy of their CD, and then here this, these songs might be on the set list, and I had like 48 hours to pull together. Now I didn't get the gig. I didn't get the gig for a lot of reasons. I had super long Pearl Jam hair at the time and <laughs> dressed, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't dress for the guy, the gig that I wanted. I showed up and I was just me. I didn't do any research. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, now you can, you know, if, if I got a call to go play for, you know, Gavin DeGraw or, or whoever, you're like, I have, all I have to do is pick up my phone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and look at, you know, uh, Travis McNabb played with him for a while. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, what did Travis do? How did he dress? What what kind of drums did mm-hmm. he use? Mm-hmm. Uh, or anyone? You have that's the great thing about now is like you can you can find a lot of misinformation like the the, right, yeah. the tap dancing saxophone playing Rob Mitchell, or you can find really good salient information and how to approach an artist, you know, yeah, uh, and what they do. Live YouTube uh, videos and different things did, like that. I didn't have that in 1993. You had mm-hmm. to kind of just all right. I know these songs, I think, and I'm just going to go out and, and mm-hmm. give it my 
you know, and, and, and I was dealing with them older dudes that had kind of a language that they spoke in that I didn't quite understand, you know, and I never felt comfortable with that because like, I wasn't like in that world yet. I had one foot kind of toe in it. And, and then I was, when I was just out of college, I was playing in a lot of rock bands and doing, mm-hmm. you know, staying busy in town working jobs. But like, I was playing for like four or five, six different people sometimes in a week, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was like, I was living in a blender and, um, and so I didn't have, I just had to, what I had just my instinct to go on. Well, now we can, yeah. you know, there's so much information out there and you can, you know, like, Hey, I, I got an audition for this artist. Great. I can pull up his Facebook page. I can go to his Spotify yeah. mm-hmm. channel or whatever and like mm-hmm. learn his stuff. But you can also kind of read interviews and, 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 and kind of find out where that person comes right. from. So, right. you know, if he's a you know, super religious person, maybe, you know, dial back the profanity <laughs> sure, or whatever yeah. you, yeah. that's just an example, but you, you kind of, if learn. you want the gift, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's and like, you do. do you want this? Do you want, I mean, do you want to, to make concessions uh, in the situation? So you, you create a work environment. I mean, we have to do it as say the quote unquote, non-artist, the center focus of the, yeah. the gig as a hired gun or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think reading the room is important. Yeah. And this probably makes me sound really old, but if you're used to not interacting with human beings, but you're used to interacting with a screen all the time mm-hmm. or a phone, maybe you need to practice getting to interact with people. Even if you're buying coffee, talk to the person behind the counter, know how to interact with human beings and, and just keep the phone out of the way. Mm-hmm. Talk to the bass player, talk to somebody who's been, you know, it's like, I've done some subbing for a friend of mine, and um, the guitar player is just kind of. I know I've got. He's a great player, and he's a he's a great guy, but he's a he's really he's a tough nut to crack, and a lot of people are very turned off by his just inability to even look at you. Mm-hmm. Not that I not that I'm trying to make him uncomfortable, but when I see him. I'll say, hey, Kevin, it's good to see you, man. And I'll put my hand out, and he'll look at me like, oh, my gosh, someone's talking to me. And all of a sudden, he opens up, like, really quick. And so the last couple times I've done that, my friend's like, hey, man, they really enjoyed working with you. I don't think I played any different. Yeah. I just know that I tried to assert myself to be like, oh, here's another sub, here's another thing, let's do this, whatever. It's just become numb to the whole situation. No. Hey, guys. When we're all having fun on stage, and we all know each other, those are the best. I mean, the the, um, the gig that you're doing tomorrow, like it's you guys put this group together because it's what you want to do, and you're I'm assuming because you're friends, yeah. And there's a social network that has motivated that gig to happen as well, and those are the best. When I'm on the road and I've got long stretches. I I'm not the best at being social with people. I, I grew up very, very shy and it, it took me years to kind of come out of that shell. But like when I get in a mode, like sometimes I just want to be left alone. If I'm in a city for three days, mm-hmm. if there's a cool museum yes. or something, I'm like, I'm going to go by myself. Mm-hmm. I need to get away. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just going to sit in my hotel room for a couple hours and read. Mm-hmm. So I don't become a, an asshole and, and strike out at people. Cause I need alone time. Yeah. <clears throat> Some people need to be around people all the time. They they thrive yeah. on that. I I don't. Yeah. I'm about a 50-50 guy. Yeah, me um, too. And so, you know, having all those, trying to, you know, understanding other people's walk in life, having empathy and, and trying to understand, uh, or sometimes just like, 
discarding it, not, not in a bad way, but just like, okay, this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is my job. Yeah. And I'm going to show up. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to do the best I can and enjoy it and be professional. And if it works out great or I move on and do something else, yeah. you know, um, you know, carrying grudges and building up resentments and, and developing these feelings about, you know, someone that, that you're working for or might be more successful for you that just shows up to maybe a sound check or shows up to the gigs. It's like, that's baggage. That's more, that's just another hardware case full of stuff yeah. that you don't want to be carrying around, yeah. you know, yeah. that's very true. Um, you kind of have to look after yourself and, and, and just enjoy what you do, you know? Well, and sometimes I think we, we, we take for granted, we forget what we have until it's gone, yeah. you know, uh, and, and keeping yourself um, mentally healthy on the road is really good. So yeah. like you say, there's, and, and that was, I remember reading some advice about when you're, don't waste the day, take advantage. You know, when you have that time, say you don't have soundtrack till four or you have time off, go outside, go do things, read, visit, you know, do that stuff. Go so for that, a run or a walk or just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, go get a massage if you've got the money. I mean, there's, you know, there's things, mm-hmm. you know, I'd mm-hmm. be, I was in not last Christmas, but the Christmas before last, I was playing with an artist in Vegas. We were there for 10 days. Have you ever been to Vegas? 48 hours feels like 10 days, you know, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's expensive. A lot but, of times. But, but we were there, we were doing, it was part of the, the national finals rodeo and we had to play every day from like six to seven and, and then we were done. We had, so we had one hour work day. Yeah. Grueling one hour. But that was the most fun and easiest part. Cause I was out with all of us were friends and we were good dudes and we enjoyed each other's company. And, uh, but you're in Vegas. It's expensive. You're in, I mean, I'm just not a fan of Vegas. Like it's fun for like 24 or 48 hours. And yeah, then yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, get me, me out of here. Me too. Um, but we were there for 10 days. I remember when we first got there, like it was towards the end of the weekend and like, you know, Russ Whitman was there and Will Easterwood and Keo and all these guys were there in town kind of playing different things associated with mm-hmm. the, the national finals rodeo. And then on Sunday they left and then it was like, we got to be here until Sunday next week. <laughs> it's like, you're just, you know, you know, when it gets to like Wednesday and Thursday, you're just, you know, and I did, man, it was, it was hard because it was like, what'd you do? Went for long walks every day, like away. We were on the strip with Mandalay, so I would just walk the other direction. The other direction, yeah. And I would just go. Uh, and one day I took a cab into like old Vegas. I hadn't been. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, and but um, but uh, but yeah, I would walk. Uh, read a lot. Caught up on some some you know Netflix movies and documentaries and stuff, and just tried to like keep the monotony of just being there. And the sound at bay. You know, oh yeah. <laughs> I can't remember how many times I would walk through the lobby of that hotel and hear smooth uh, uh. Rob Thomas. And, 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 you know, it's like literally one day, I think I heard it like six times. It's like, yeah, I would yeah, rather yeah. hear those, the slot machines going off and hear that song one more time. And I did, you know, I did blow some steam off and go gamble. I do like the slots. I played a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, play a little, uh, uh, blackjack, but it was like, you just have to you have to figure out ways to make sense of all that stuff because people think oh you're a musician you're glamorous and you travel around it's like mm-hmm. no it's a lot of mm-hmm. it's a sitting challenge. around waiting yeah. to play all that other stuff is what you're getting paid for and people have said this before and I, know. I won't try to yeah. say it any different but the, the the 45 minutes to two hours or however long you're on stage you're really that's you're getting paid to show up and play but it's all the other stuff showing up to the curbside at an airport on time or to bus call or to rehearsal, having your shit together. All those things 
or what you're being paid for to be yeah. a, a good, decent, hardworking musician and human being that shows up and takes whatever job it is seriously, you know. Well, Rob, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for, for talking and, and, and coming over here, man. Well, thanks for having yeah. me, man. Good I to see you, I appreciate this, and the, the podcast is great. I've Good. enjoyed several episodes, as well as being on my second one. Um, but yeah, no, it's, so I think you're doing great you're work. Right. I hope it, uh, I appreciate you, man. it keeps going on. Yeah, it will. we got some cool things coming yeah. up, so it'll be a good year. But thank you, man. Thank appreciate you for it. having me. Appreciate it. So there was my talk with Rob. Rob's one of those guys that has just been um, in the mix here in Nashville for as long as I can remember. Of course, he was here way before me, and uh, I feel like it's been another one of those things about the podcast that's been great for me is finally a chance to sit down with one of these people that I feel like I've known, but I don't really know. So uh, it was great to get to know Rob. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with him as much as I did. My thanks, as always, goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and tune in next week for Zach Albetta's interviews. We've got some exciting things coming up later this year that we will keep you posted about in a way that you can participate with us. We're real excited about this. In a few weeks, we've got our interview with Russ Miller. I'm very excited about. We've been talking about it with the new Mapex ad that we've had at the beginning of this episode. So it has come to fruition, and I'm excited to share that with you. So stay tuned for my interview with Russ Miller. But again, everyone, thanks for listening so much, and I'll see you around. Bye-bye.